good morning again. Um, I must admit, this is a little bit weird for me. Uh, this whole week, uh, up until about Tuesday, at about 8 p.m., uh, we had planned for today to be my ordination service. We had planned for today to be uh, a special Sunday in that I, I also would have got the Sunday off from preaching. And so um, it meant that I, last week I prepped for next week's sermon instead of this week's sermon. And it means that this week I also prepped for next week's sermon, uh, which means that I, I hadn't prepped for a sermon for today. And so on Wednesday morning when I woke up after our, our we'd had our board meeting Tuesday night, and, and I woke up and I said, um, well, I guess I have to preach on on Sunday. I was a bit of a loss because I thought, well, I haven't planned anything. And so at first I thought, well, you know what I'll do is I'll just move our sermon schedule up one week. Uh, I'll just bump everything up a week early. But that really was going to mess up uh, our, our schedule of how our series laid out. I've got two ser series between now and uh, Palm Sunday. And if I move them up just one week up, it was going to mess up where everything landed. And then it would have messed up my schedule, but also it would have messed up Pastor Ralph. Uh, and, and Jesse, who who planned both their their children's story and, and also their worship songs based off the theme that I give them weeks and sometimes even months in advance. And so if I switch all of a sudden everything that I'm doing, that kind of throws a curveball to them too. And so it really wasn't going to work just to bump everything up. And so I was stuck with this week where on Wednesday, uh, three days before I'm supposed to preach and, and really two days before I was going to have to record a sermon because I knew we weren't doing live, I'm sitting there thinking, uh, what do I preach on? And I can't launch a series because I have one week. Uh, next week, we begin a series on smartphone Christianity and, and all the ways that smartphone, uh, smartphones have, have interacted and influenced our Christian lives. A and so it was crazy in that way. It's been a crazy week in other things, too. I mean, the stay-at-home order. Uh, this has been a, a new challenge for us as we deliberate uh, how do we do church uh, while honoring the stay-at-home order? How do we do church while also making sure that we have fellowship and worship and we're engaging with people, but also being smart and safe uh, and, and being a good witness in the world? And so it's been a crazy week in that regards, and it's been a crazy week, too, with everything going on in the States. Of course, our closest neighbors, uh, what what happens there definitely affects us. And so it's been a bit of a crazy week for all those things. And amongst all of that, amongst all those things, I, I felt this growing sense of frustration, this growing sense of a frustration that is, is turning into anger or in a, in a lot of places has already turned into anger. I mean, I've been frustrated. I'm frustrated myself, and I'm sure you can relate and say you're frustrated, too. I'm frustrated with this pandemic. I'm frustrated that I haven't seen friends in what feels like forever. I'm frustrated I haven't seen family. Uh, I'm frustrated with this new stay-at-home order because this seems like a step backwards from where we were going. I mean, I completely understand the need for this change, and I completely understand the need for these rules and these restrictions, and at the same time, I can still be frustrated by them. E even if I agree with them and say they're necessary, I can still say that I'm frustrated that we have to do them. A and so... At the same time, as being frustrated with those things, I'm also frustrated by some people. And, and at times, that frustration gets the better with me. I'm frustrated with some of the people, neighbors or friends or family, that don't seem to get the importance or the severity of what we're going through as a culture. Uh, I'm frustrated by uh, people who don't seem to think that any of the rules apply for them. People who are having parties at their house and inviting friends over and having these big gatherings. Every time I, I see people in the news getting ticketed, it's generally not their first time, it's their second or their third or their fourth time. Uh, there's a sense of frustration 
uh, amongst people towards our politicians at this time. Uh, some who feel like they're not doing enough, some feel they're doing too much, and, and then there's that frustration over the politicians that just can't play by their own rules, the ones that are getting caught vacationing in Bermuda or in the Caribbean when they know they're not supposed to be and they've told us not to do so. And so there's a sense of this frustration, and I'm not the only one who feels it. I'm sure that you have felt a bit of that frustration at times. And this frustration boils over at times and turns into anger. I've seen it on social media where fights happen all the time. Uh, I've seen not just social media fights, but I've seen literal fist fights on the news and the media. We've seen riots in places. Uh, in my own life, my, my frustration has turned to, to an, an anger that turns to tears uh, multiple times over the last two or three weeks as I sit about where we are and, and where our society is, and I'm just brought to tears with some of the frustration that I have over it. And so what do we do with all of this? What do we do to deal with that? How do we, how do we deal with this? Uh, I want to look at something that I think is super related in this time. Uh, it's a story that happens in John 11. If you're familiar, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus' friend, Lazarus. I think at looking, or by looking at this interaction with Jesus and Lazarus, uh, we will learn some lessons about truth, tears, anger, and grace. A and now before I start, before I, before I talk about truth, tears, anger, and grace, I want to just say that I'm borrowing heavily here from Timothy Keller, uh, both in this theme of this sermon, uh, the subject, but also in the outline of how he structures his points. Uh, I think he summarizes exactly what I was trying and hoping to say. He summarizes a lot of the feelings that I have about what's going on right now. And so I think we're going to start, or I, I, I think I'm borrowing heavily uh, from Timothy here. And so that's just a, uh, a word that this is, this is his material for, for a lot of it. And uh, I just think it's really applicable. And so I've adapted and related it to where we are today. And so I'm going to start with a reading of this scripture. And I think it's important that we read the whole thing, even though it's a bit lengthy. Um, so I think it's worthwhile sometimes to just even read these really long Bible stories as, as part of our sermon, because I think there's a lot in there that just speaks to us through the words of scripture themselves. So I'm going to read uh, John 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 44, and I'm reading from the NIV. And so it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. They said, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews there, they tried to stone you and you're going to go back there. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? And anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant just natural sleep. And so then he told them plainly, he said, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, so that you may believe, let us go to him. But Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But I know that even now, God will give whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she'd said this, she went back and she called her sister Mary. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. And Mary heard this. She got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. And it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And take away the stone, Jesus says. Martha says, but Lord, by this time there will be a bad odor. For he has been there for four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you have always heard me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice. He said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth was around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, it's a bit lengthy, but that is a beautiful story. And in this story, Jesus offers four things. Uh, see, Mary and Martha were facing a tragedy. They're, they're facing a tragedy that I, I'm sure many of us are familiar with, the tragedy of a loss of a loved one. Now, their tragedy, though it may not look like it, is very similar to the tragedy that we are actually going through right now. We might not identify this pandemic as a tragedy right off the bat, but I believe this pandemic is a tragedy. There's lots of tragedy in this pandemic. I mean, we can't see family or friends unless they live in our house. Uh, so that's a tragedy to go without seeing our loved ones. And I've done multiple funerals throughout this time since last March. And when I do a funeral and there's less than 10 people allowed to be there, I see the pain and the sorrow. And I see that loved ones who are broken because they can't even come to a funeral to say goodbye to their grandfather or their uncle. There's tragedy in the fact that we celebrated our Christmases and our birthdays alone. And amidst all of this tragedy, many of us or many, of, uh, many Christians or many people are simply asking the same question that Mary and Martha asked. They say, God, where are you in this? God, where are you in this? Now, Jesus offers four things in this, and I want to look at them all. I want to look at the truth, the tears, the anger, and the grace. And I believe it's these four things that Timothy Keller identifies, but I believe that Jesus offers here. And so first, let's look at the tears of Jesus. The shortest verse in the Bible is verse 35, right here. Jesus wept. See, Jesus goes back to see Mary and Martha because he hears of Lazarus' death. And he, and he gets there, and Mary first says to him, uh, or sorry, Martha first says to him, Lord, where were you? You could have stopped this. And then, and then Mary says it later. She says, where, where were you? If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. 
And so Jesus says, well, where have you buried my friend? And he, and he goes to the tomb, and when he gets there, he weeps. And this is important for several reasons. Now, first, we need to remember that Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God, and he enters this tragedy with something that we don't have. We don't have when we enter tragedy. He has knowledge of why it happened. He knows that this situation is, is going to be a situation where God's glory and God's power are shown to all. So he knows that this situation is going to be used to show glory to God and power to God. And he knows that in, in about 10 minutes, these tears are not going to be tears of sorrow anymore, but they're going to be tears of joy and laughter and excitement over the raising of Lazarus. So he knows what about is about to happen. He knows why this happens. When you and I enter a tragedy, we don't have that kind of foreknowledge. We don't know exactly what's going to come out on the other end. We don't know why this has all happened. Many of us are asking that question about this pandemic. Why has this all happened? And so we don't have that foreknowledge that Jesus had. He knew what was going to come about of this. And the second thing that Jesus has that you and I don't have is this power of God that Jesus has, being Jesus. See, Jesus has the power to change the problem, to change the entire situation. In this pandemic, we find ourselves... Part of our anger, part of our frustration is because you and I cannot change this. You and I cannot change this. I'm not a scientist. I can't go out tonight and find the cure by myself. I'm not a politician. I can't go out and change all of the rules for everything and make everything go away. I can't just snap my fingers and make this pandemic disappear. I can't fight this fan. I, I can't invite the, the pandemic to a, to a fist fight and, you know, and duke it out with this. I can't do anything to stop this. I can't tell dad jokes enough till it leaves out of frustration with me. There's nothing that I can do to change that. Now, we do have some power, of course. As Christians, we have power. We have God's power. And we definitely have some power here. We have power in this situation. We have power to stay home. We have the power to be encouragement. We have the power to, to show people hope and grace. We have the power to show others love. We have lots of power in a situation like this, but we didn't have the same power that Jesus had here. We, it doesn't, we didn't have the same power that Jesus has where he could snap his fingers and, and, and you know, sort of just change the entire situation, just speak, and the entire outcome has changed. And so my question is, knowing that Jesus had that power and knowing that Jesus had that foreknowledge of why this happened and the miracle that he was about to do, knowing all that, why did Jesus weep? And I think, I think this is something that, that I point out that, that because, this is, this is something we talked about last week, because Jesus' character is perfect, because his character is perfect and love exists in him is, as perfection, uh, uh, being God, his character is perfect, love exists in him as perfection, then because his love for Lazarus was perfect, he didn't close his heart off. He didn't close his heart off and, and choose to not feel the pain and grief that comes with the loss of a loved one. He entered into grief because that's what happened when love is wounded like that. That's what happened at the torment of love like that. You enter into that grief. And so Jesus enters into that grief too. And two important things we need to be noted about that. First, it needs to be noted that it is entirely okay to weep. It is okay to weep. I need to say that again, especially for the men that are listening. It's okay to weep. It is okay to cry. Society lies to us, and, and I'm going to say society especially lies to men and says that men, you shouldn't cry. To cry is, is considered girly or feminine in some way, and so it, society tells you that to be manly, you shouldn't cry. Or it says, it says weeping is immature, and it says only children weep. Society says only little kids cry and weep, that grown-ups don't weep, right? In the words of Fergie, big girls don't cry. 
But that's just a load of BS. That's, that's baloney. People cry. It is okay to cry. Jesus was seriously the manliest person that I think has ever existed. And he was also the wisest person that has ever existed. He was wiser than C.S. Lewis, and he was a hundred times as manly as Chuck Norris. And I mean, he, he took beatings and torture, and he, and he died the worst death that the Romans could think of. And he did it willingly, know what it was going to be like. And so if it is okay for Jesus to weep, then it is definitely okay for us to weep. It's okay to be pulled into grief and to let yourself experience lament. It's okay to lament. It is okay to cry. The second thing that we need to know about this is that we don't always have to try to fix it. We don't have to try to fix every situation. That's our temptation in tragedy, though, isn't it? When tragedy comes, it is our temptation to try to fix it. When a friend loses a loved one or a friend loses a job, we look for the words that we can say that will fix it, right? We look for the words that will say, aha, here, I've made it all better for you. Now, by my wonderful cliche or my wonderful platitude, everything is better. We sit with our loved ones and we look for the words that will fix it. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Right? He was likely wise enough to actually just say to Mary and Marthi, Martha, uh, oh, hey, here's some wonderful words that make everything go away. Here's the power to fix it so you're not sad anymore. Uh, but he doesn't do that. He sits and he weeps. He enters into lament. They're lamenting and they're in grief, and he enters into lament and grief with them. It's okay to cry. It's okay to lament. We don't have to try to fix everything immediately. So right now, in our situation where we find ourselves, it is okay to just be sad about where we are sometimes, to be sad about the state that we find our culture in, to, to look at where we are and how we are shutting behind our doors and to just, just to cry a little bit and say, this, this kind of sucks. It's okay to say that. It's okay to find ourselves in tragedy and enter into grief and to sit there for a little bit. And so the first thing is let's learn to weep with those who weep. Let's lament with our brothers and sisters. Let's share tears. Now, the second thing that I think is offered here that we learn about is, is anger. Um, did you notice anything in the NIV about anger? In verse 33, it doesn't really say anger. It says, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Now, the NRSV, uh, it comes to a bit of a better translation. It says, he was greatly disturbed and he was deeply moved. He was greatly disturbed and deeply moved. Now, basically, the original words here give an image of shaking with anger. The original Greek words here give this idea of someone so angry they're shaking. Have you ever seen someone shake with rage? So angry and upset that they shake with rage? In verse 38, again, the words say he was deeply moved. But according to Timothy Keller and other commentators, the better translation of the word here would be to roar or snort like an anger of a lion or a bull, to roar or snort with the anger of a lion or a bull. Jesus comes to the tomb in verse 38, and he basically roars with anger. He basically roars with anger. And this is important, and we do need to note a few things about this. First, do you notice how he interacts with Mary and Martha? He doesn't blame them for, for being upset. Right? Think all the way back to Job. When we remember Job, uh, Job's situation w was a pretty terrible situation. He lost his family, his house, his kids. He lost everything, right? And Job's friends come to sit with him. And do you remember what they do? The whole time, they kind of blame Job. They say, well, Job, um, if you didn't have this sin part in your life, you must have some unconfessed sin. So this is obviously your fault, right? They, they blame Job for this whole situation. They say, well, this is probably because you have sin in your life. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't come to Mary and Martha and say, well, you know, Lazarus probably sinned. He probably deserved it. You know, he doesn't come and say, well, you know, the world's better without Lazarus. He was kind of a jerk, right? They, he doesn't do that. He doesn't get angry at Lazarus. 
And he doesn't get angry at Mary and Martha. He doesn't come to them and say, stop being sad. You're being ridiculous. You don't need to cry over this. It's natural. Death happens. He doesn't say that. He doesn't come and say, just get over it. You know, dust yourself off. Shake it off. He doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't say, just deal with it. He doesn't do that. The third person who doesn't get mad at, he doesn't get mad at Lazarus. He doesn't get mad at Mary and Martha. He doesn't get mad at himself. He doesn't get mad at himself. And that's important. Nowhere does it say that Jesus goes, ugh, dang. You know, if only I hadn't stayed in for two days in that last town before coming back to Judea, oh, man. Or he doesn't look and go, oh, dudes, if, if only we hadn't stopped at Starbucks, oh, we would have been here just in time. Or, you know, if only there wasn't traffic or if only I had done this, right? He doesn't get angry at himself. He doesn't blame himself. But often those are our responses, aren't they? In tragedy, we blame the person. We say, well, they shouldn't have been there and doing that, so that's their fault. Right? If they weren't in that situation, it wouldn't happen. So that's their fault. Right? Or we blame the people around the victim or, or the person in the tragedy or the, or the people in the tragedy. We say, well, this is that person's fault. This is so-and-so's fault. Right? We wouldn't be this pandemic if it wasn't for so-and-so. Right? Or we blame ourselves. Or we say, this is, you know, this is my fault. I should have been there. I should have done something. I, I should have said something. I should have been this place. We get angry. We do one of those things. Or sometimes we even get angry at God. We say, you know, God, how could you? Obviously, God, you, you're not real if this happened. This is your fault. You, you obviously don't love me. You know, God, you let this happen because you hate us. And we get angry at God over it. And it's important to say now that anger during grief or tragedy is normal. Anger, anger happens. It's okay to get a little bit angry at things. But do you notice where Jesus places his anger? It's not at Lazarus for being dead or in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not at Mary and Martha for somehow doing something wrong. He's not angry at himself. Where is Jesus angry at in this? He's angry at the tomb, right? He's angry at death. He is frustrated and angry at death, nothing else. He is angered by death. Right now, many of us are probably frustrated and perhaps even angry. I saw a lot of this at the beginning of the pandemic, and I'm seeing even more of it now. In the beginning of the pandemic, I saw this weird anger at China, the whole country of China, as if this is all China's fault and, and all, all Chinese people are somehow to blame for this. There was actual acts of racism here in Toronto and in Waterloo towards uh, people who simply looked Chinese because of how angry people were at China, for this example. right? And so, so we're angry at people who have nothing to do with the situation. We're angry at Trudeau and other politicians saying Trudeau didn't act fast enough, or he didn't do enough, or, or he didn't stockpile enough. And, you know, we're, now we're angry at Doug Ford saying, Doug Ford, uh, you shouldn't have done this lockdown. Or the other side, or Doug Ford, you should have done this lockdown forever ago, right? We're, we're angry about all of these things, but we're angry at all the wrong things. That's not where our anger should be. We can be angry, of course. Jesus was angry in this situation, but his anger was focused on the right thing. His anger was focused on death, sickness. I'm angry about the situation, but I'm not angry at my friends. I should be angry at COVID. I should be angry at this pandemic. I should be angry at sickness being in the world. That's where anger should be. That's where anger is focused. So you notice what Jesus does? He says, out of this death, out of this, I'm going to bring something better. I'm going to turn this death, this thing I'm angry at, I'm going to turn this into a resurrection. That's the whole gospel story right there, right? Death to resurrection. And what about for us? This sickness, this pandemic, this, this, this tragedy we find ourselves in. How do we turn this into a resurrection storyline? How do we take this anger that we have over the situation we find ourselves in, this tragedy, how do we do something like Jesus would do in the story? How do we take this situation, do something better with it? Is the next thing is where we see a bit of that, is where Jesus offers truth. Jesus offers truth here. 
See, in this situation that we, Jesus finds himself in uh, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he offers truth in the situation. He doesn't offer some Christian cliche or some Christian platitude. He doesn't offer a, a fake consolation. He offers simple truth. He says, says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? He says to Martha, he says, I can give you something so much more, something, something so much better than what we have right here. I can give you something so much better than wishful thinking or cliches or platitudes. You just have to believe that it is possible. You just have to believe in me. Jesus offers resurrection. Now, what is that to say Jesus offers resurrection? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean to Timothy Keller's exact definition here because I think it's very applicable. He says resurrection here, he says it means I have come not to take you out of the earth to a heaven way away, but I have come to bring the power of heaven down to earth, to make a new heaven and a new earth and to make everything new. I'm going to restore everything that was lost, and it will be a million times better than you can imagine. This is the power of my future, and this is the power of the new heaven and earth. That's what Timothy Keller says Jesus means by resurrection here. A new heaven, a new earth, Jesus is bringing that here. And that's what he offers Mary and Martha. He says the tears will be gone, the suffering will be gone, the death and disease, it will all be wiped out. Everything will be made new. It will be made like it was supposed to be in the beginning. Perfect. That's the resurrection Jesus is offering here. And he says to Martha, do you believe this? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in flesh, God incarnate. God, come down to earth to die on a cross for us. This is the truth of the gospel. C.S. Lewis says it so much better than I. He says, when he, he wrote, sorry, he said, uh, if we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom as love that we cannot even imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Now that process will be long, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. That's what C.S. Lewis says we are in for. That's what was being offered to Mary and Martha here. That is the truth. And do you believe that? Jesus asked Martha, do you believe that? And I, and I think he's asking us now, do you believe that? Do you believe that resurrection he's still offering? And if you believe that, then you can face anything. And so here we see that Jesus has offered truth. He has offered tears and he has offered anger. But I think he offers one more thing in this story. Do you know what happens immediately after this story? If you got your Bible handy, you can flip ahead just to see immediately the next section here. Right after the story of Jesus raising his friend from the dead, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. The very next section is right there for you to look at. And it says the chief priests and the Pharisees, the leaders, the rulers, they got together and basically they say, this guy has to go. Look at what he just did. Look what will happen if more people believe in him. We are in big trouble. We have got to get rid of him right now. We've got to get rid of this guy. Right? They, they plot to get rid of Jesus right here after he's just raised someone from the dead because they're afraid of him. The thing is, is that Jesus knew this was going to happen. He knew that by bringing Lazarus back, this would be the next thing that happened. He knew that by bringing Lazarus back from the dead, this would be a catalyst that signs his own death warrant. Right? He knew that, and yet he still did it. He still brought Lazarus back knowing what was going to come of it. And why? Because that's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of God that we have. He's so committed to love. He's so committed to ending suffering and death that he was willing to suffer and die for us in our place. 
People often say things when they object to God. They say, well, you know, if God cared, he would end suffering. If God cared, he would end death. Why is there disease and all these things? And if God truly cared and loved us, he would do that. He would end those things. And see, I always respond by saying, well, see, that's how I know God does love us. Because he has done something about it. He has already brought an end to suffering and death. He sent his son to die in the most unjust, awful, horrible, filled uh, death that could ever be imagined. He cares so much he did that so that suffering and death could be conquered once and for all. He ended those things when he sent Jesus so that one day those things, when Jesus comes back, those things will no longer be here. We will be made new. God cares so much he was willing to trade places on that cross with me and you. He took our place sitting on that cross. He died the death that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to. He was the ultimate sacrifice for you and I. And he did it all when we were still sinners. He did it all when we still sinners and we had yet to love him. While we were still undeserving, he offered that grace. Knowing what was going to happen when he brought Lazarus back from the tomb, he still did it. Knowing the very next conversation that people would be having about him was to kill him. Because Jesus offers grace. I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, This is a really hard time for a lot of us. A lot of us are struggling, uh, and I'm sure that uh, you, like me, are having a hard time with some of the restrictions of this pandemic. And likely some of this has turned into frustration and grief and anger even. And we find ourselves stuck in a situation that we seemingly can't do much about. But we only need to remember that Jesus offered truth, tears, anger, and grace in a situation like this to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And if, like me, you are struggling in this time, if, like everyone else, you are having a hard time with this, go to God. Go to God and find his tears, find his weeping with us. Go to God and find the truth that he offers to us in the middle of this. Go to God and find his anger, find that anger in this situation. And go to God and find that grace. That's what you need. Today, this is how we get through this, by going to God, letting God be our anchor in this storm. Let's pray. Father, grow us as a people, as a community, as a city. Lord Jesus, Jesus died for me, for each one of us, for everyone here, and he is the resurrection and the life, and we know that. Father, give us hope to face tomorrow and the new challenges that tomorrow brings. Give us courage to put our feet on the floor tomorrow, to walk towards whatever the future brings our way. Lord, install in us your love and your joy, your wisdom and your hopes that we might be a light in this city, a hope in the darkness of this world, a beacon in the storm as we point our friends and our family and our neighbors to you. Jesus, all of this we pray. Amen.